A young mother and her little child are dropped off at the airport for an international flight. This young woman is a sharp lady. She is an experienced traveler. She is a devoted and loving mother. She's a capable manager. And her little boy is incapable of even conceiving of the journey ahead, let alone navigating it. He is wholly dependent upon his mother. He has no idea, think of the many nuances, but no idea how to secure a ticket or to get his luggage checked or to pass through security. He really doesn't even know what's happening to him. He could never find the right gate or board the proper plane. He could never navigate the change of airlines as they make their journey across the world. He cannot buckle his own seatbelt. He cannot find the bathroom, either in the terminal or in the airplane. He does not know how to secure a drink for himself. But his wise and loving mother will meet his every need. She will not provide his every want. She will refuse some of his strongest desires along the way, and all are thankful for that. She will not explain most of her actions to him as they go through, but she will meet his every need and get him to their final destination. We understand this, don't we? Pretty straightforward and simple illustration. But how foolish of us to think that our Heavenly Father is any less capable or any less loving. If you have been born again, then God is your Father. And hear the words again of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. Under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he says, Our Heavenly Father will supply our every need according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He will supply our every need according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Your infinitely wise and loving Father is meeting your every need as He brings you to your final destination. And if God promises to meet our every need, then we can confidently say that God is our only need. Think of the boy on the airplane. Think of this little boy with his mother. In one sense, his mother is his only need. Since she will see to every need and guide him on the journey, she is his only need. And in like manner, God is our all-sufficient source for every need forever. If we know Christ as our personal Savior. This is God's nature. This is His unalterable relationship to His people. And we witness an early revelation of this biblical theme here in this 16th chapter of the book of Exodus. Remembering in context, back at the end there of chapter 15, Israel is on the journey from the Red Sea where God has miraculously rescued her from the Egyptian army. And Israel is making her way south and east to Mount Sinai. In chapter 15, Israel encounters a very bitter providence. They come to a place where they do not have enough water. Then they find water and find that it is so bitter it is undrinkable. The key to this passage of Scripture in chapter 15, which is a key that will carry forward in this wilderness journey down to Mount Sinai, we find in verse 25 of chapter 15. 15:25, And he cried to the Lord. 
that is Moses, and the Lord showed him a log or tree, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. There he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and give all his and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. It's not a promise of absolute health at all times by any means, but it is a more general statement that I will watch over you for your good to the very end. What is your job, Israel? Your job is to heed the word of God, to hear what I have to say, and I will guide you home. Israel faces crisis and she learns this principle that we must live by the word of God. And as she journeys south, the test of Israel's faith continues here in chapter 16, where we find Israel's second crisis and God's response. That is, second crisis since leaving the Red Sea. Chapter 16 and verse 1, they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. By the way, the wilderness of sin is just an area, and the word sin has no relationship to the English word sin, although, as commentators have noted, it does prove fairly fitting as we work our way through. But that's not, it's not the English word sin, it's a Hebrew word sin. Israel is one month into the wilderness journey. And at verse 2, we find again a crisis. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Israel sang and danced for joy on the shores of the Red Sea when God delivered them from the Egyptian army. But Israel refuses here to recognize that it is this very same God who has brought her to this place. This place where there is not enough food. And once again they grumble against God's chosen leaders. It's a backhanded way to complain against God. Their attack against Moses and Aaron is obviously very unfair, and it is delusional. You can hear them saying, oh, we sure had a good in Egypt, didn't we? Man, it was good back there. Remember that we'd get together at nights and we'd sit around the fire and we'd boil meat in the pot there as families. Wasn't that a wonderful time? Remember that? Remember those good days when we gorged ourselves on Egyptian bread? Now you, Moses and Aaron... You brought us out here to kill us with hunger. We're mad at you. Well, they're remembering the good old days, as Philip Ryken puts it, when they used to belly up to Pharaoh's buffet. But we know their memory is very selective, isn't it? Very selective, and it's idealized. They did not look so happily upon their days in Egypt when they were actually there, did they? You remember the word of cry to the Lord and complaint. I mean, they gathered around those fires and boiled the meat as their bodies ached from their slavery. And as they dealt with the oppression that they dealt with every day, they've forgotten about that now. Those were not easy days. 
And when they were in Egypt, they were crying with bitter anguish. But now they cry against Moses and Aaron. And so we see that Israel has lost touch with reality. She has lost touch with God. God has led Israel here. But the Israelites value good circumstances more than they value God's will. Hang on to that thought. They value good circumstances more than they value God's will. Reichen again says, in effect, they are saying that they wish they had never been saved. Give us bondage or give us death is now their cry. They were rebelling against God's plan for their salvation. It's a true word. We see again the characteristics of grumbling here, don't we? We learn more of it as we move out of chapter 15 and to chapter 16. I think we could add this to what we considered last week. That grumbling is often an idea, brings with to us an idealized view of the past. Grumblers tend to put a really rosy picture on what happened before and to lose sight of what it was really all about. And secondly, we notice here that grumbling against spiritual leadership is in the present is often a characteristic of grumbling. An idealized view of the past, a grumbling against spiritual leadership in the present, which is really a veiled attack against God. It's a dissatisfaction, a discontent with what is. And we all know this, don't we? We know this experience. We've been here. To know that the circumstances that God has brought into my life right here at this point, I don't really like it. I like things the way they used to be. This is grumbling, and it's ugly. But God in His mercy takes this grumbling little child Israel, and He meets her need. It's amazing grace. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. I've gotten their point. I've gotten their attention, Moses, and now I need to drive this point home. The need here is for them to hear me to listen to me, to walk with me, to heed my word. There's parallels here to Mara, isn't there? As we looked at it in chapter 15 last week, there's crisis. And then there's a God who provides for Israel in such a way that her loyalty is tested. Israel would have a daily responsibility to collect bread Sunday through Thursday, and on Friday there'd be double duty. There'd be two times as much to bring in. Moses and Aaron convey these words of God to the grumbling Israelites at verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because He has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. The primary points of these three verses is, number one, that God is going to respond to your grumblings about a lack of food. This is the grace of God. 
It's not that God needs this in order to move. He's willing to supply your needs all the time, but he's heard your grumbling, and he's going to supply your food. Secondly, your grumblings against us are really grumblings against him. God led Israel here, and God would provide for her here. So Israel's complaint against Moses and Aaron was actually misdirected frustration against God. Take the little boy. It helps us picture it. In the airplane, he's grumbling about his desire for water. His mother knows as she looks down the aisle that there comes those who are serving the water, the drinks, and there's going to be a drink of water here coming pretty soon. She knows that. But he grumbles and grumbles and complains about, I want a drink, I want a drink. The mother responds, why? Well, because he grumbled, right? But not at all. She doesn't respond because he grumbled. She knows he has a need for a drink, and she knows how to supply that drink, and when it's the right time. And she gives him water. This is God here. That is a picture of God here with the Israelites. He's not responding because they grumbled. He is the supplier of their every need. And as his little children, they grumble and complain, and at the right time, he supplies them with food. Verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Can you see the mother on the plane? Just bring her little child to her side and say, It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Come near to me. Israel grumbling against God. Remember last week, defining grumbling, it's always the low tones with our back turned against God. God says, come on, Israel, come on back and look at me and let's talk. I want you to see again my glory. Verse 10, And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Gives you chills as you think of it. The glory cloud that has been leading Israel, shining with the glory of God, comes back and visits the people right with them and among them. We don't know if it's been gone or if it's just been way out ahead of them, but he comes back right into the presence of the camp and he says, Israel, I've heard your cry. The Lord says to Moses, apparently so that the Israelites can hear, verse 11, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God's already said this to Moses, but apparently the people hear this instruction and this promise of God's provision. In verse 13, we see the meat arriving in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there on the face of the wilderness, a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, one another what is it? And the Hebrew word manna comes from that phrase. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. We have two sources of food here. There's quail, a small migratory bird in the pheasant family, considered a delicacy in Egypt. I think there's probably a connection there. They're talking about the meat of Egypt. God brings the best meat right to them. And quail are known even to this day to migrate from Africa up to Europe uh, in the spring and to return the trip on the other way and many times land right in this region of the Sinai Peninsula. 
Often they will come driven by the wind and flying very low and very exhausted. God brings in a whole bunch of quail to land right here, right at this time, right for them. And it is very easy, they say, to even catch these birds with your hands. It's not difficult to kill them. They didn't need to have guns and sharpshooters out there. They just went out and collected the meat and roasted it up. And it was good. And God had provided and God provided, secondly, manna, miraculously providing a daily supply of bread for what will turn out to be 40 years. So God provides Israel's daily need, and His provision includes, as has been the case, a test. Verse 16. We've looked at Israel's crisis and God's provision. Beginning at verse 16, we see God's instructions and Israel's response to God's provision. Verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, it's a measure, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. So God orchestrates what Enns calls a perpetual state of dependence, requiring what another has called discipline of dailiness. Every day, Israel will have to go out and earn her bread. In addition, God will meet Israel's need only insofar as Israel obeys God's word. I'd like us real quickly here, if we could, just keep your finger here and go back to Deuteronomy 8. A couple of books back. Toward the back, Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2. As Moses writes the second giving of the law, he says in 8.2 of Deuteronomy, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commands or not. You see the emphasis here on the commands of God and keeping those commands. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. You can talk about that for a long time. He let you hunger. He didn't kill him. But he let him go hungry. Why? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. There's something more important than our daily bread, and that is the word of the God who provides every need. He may make you hungry, but he will take care of you. And Israel, back in Exodus 16 and verse 17, we see initially obeys. 16, 17 of Exodus, and the people of Israel did so. That is, they listened to the word of God. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Now this might be miraculous, that is everyone, no matter how much they gather, gets just the right amount to eat every day. Or it may be, as Paul seems to indicate in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that what's happening here is they're sharing with one another. Everybody goes out and gathers, and some days some don't have enough, and some days others have more than they need, and they share together uh, the, this bread that is collected. Whatever the meaning is, each one is cared for. A second word of instruction comes at verse 19, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. 
Well, he said, go out and get the food, and they all went out and got the food. Now he says, don't leave any of it sit overnight. This proves a little more tempting. In the first case, they're driven by an empty stomach. On this one, it's an issue of greed. It's an issue of listening to the voice of God at a place where it doesn't make quite as much sense. When he says, go out and get some food, well, that's not hard to do because you're hungry. But now he says, don't sit on it. Verse 20, but they did not listen. They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. The Israelites always had enough manna. But on that first Friday, the people were to gather twice the regular amount that they gathered Sunday through Thursday. And having been instructed by God, Moses explains to them, Verse 21, morning by morning they gathered, just a historical note here, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. That's the way it was going to be. You had to take one day at a time except on this sixth day. And on the sixth day, verse 22, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. Does it make sense? They kept some overnight, and it rotted. But on the sixth day, they gather twice as much. They keep it. It doesn't rot. Moses said, here's the deal. Tomorrow's a Sabbath. Tomorrow is the seventh day. Baking the manna into bread or boiling it into a porridge, God would preserve the manna from the normal corruption so that it would be fit to eat on the Sabbath. No manna would be gathered on the Sabbath because no manna would be provided by God. God would suspend the supply, and Israel was to suspend labor. This is not an arbitrary idea. This is going back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where in the very creative order, God establishes a day of rest. It says indeed in, in Genesis that God himself rests from his labors on that day. This, of course, is not a rest to say God doesn't do anything on the seventh day. But it is a rest from work, it is a rest from labor, and it is a rest that he commends to his people. Sabbath is a demonstration, then, that God's people can trust in God's provision. We miss this a little bit in our culture, most of us. The idea of having to scramble for every day's food. But there are places in the world, in fact, that is where Israel is, where you have to scramble to stay alive. You've got to collect food every single day of your life. It is an act of faith to stop on the Sabbath and not to work. Sabbath is a demonstration then that God's people can trust in God's provision. There does not seem to be indication of a day of rest for people in the ancient world, but for God's people, a weekly day of rest is to be observed as a time for worship, and it is a statement. We believe in God. We have a God who provides. We can take a day off and rest. You know what? Once we were slaves. Deuteronomy makes much of this idea of the Sabbath. Once we were slaves. Deuteronomy says if you have slaves, you give them a day off. 
You give them rest on the Sabbath. You don't drive them. Slavery being something very different, of course, than it was experienced in our nation. Probably more parallel to you have employees. You don't work them seven days a week. You give them a day free. Because God is in heaven. He rests on the seventh day, and we rest and worship to say that God will supply our needs. Safeguarding against such, let me say it this way, the Sabbath laws conjure up notions of rigid restrictions against play or any hint of fun. And against that, safeguarding against that misery that some would suspect is there, we're quickly assured that the Sabbath observance has been replaced by the Lord's Day and that we're now to rest in Jesus at all times. And I think there is some truth in that from the book of Colossians and the book of Hebrews that indicate that our Sabbath rest is in Christ and is at all times in the midst of the work that we do. But I think we need to walk very cautiously here. Before we simply throw out the Sabbath as some old ritual, it does not cancel the creative design of a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That one day in seven is set aside for the worship of God and the suspension of labor. Now, this plays out differently in our day and in our setting, but I think that it is a principle that we don't want to lose. And I would just encourage you that as we gather on this first day of the week, we gather as Christians for a day of worship. We gather as God's people on this Lord's day not simply to pursue frenetic activity that leads to exhaustion, but to rest, to relax, to worship God, to take this time out and say this is the Lord's day, and we will seek Him in it. We gather as a church typically on Sunday nights, and I wonder, for some, this service may get in the way of the play and the fun and the things that we want to do and the work around the house. We need to think about that very carefully. This is the Lord's day. That's not to say that if you don't come to church on a Sunday night, you've somehow violated the 11th commandment or something like that. But I think we should look at the Lord's day as a day of rest, as a day of worship. Consider how to do that. It's not the Sabbath of the Old Testament. In fact, it's not even the same day, is it? It's the first day of the week. It's not the seventh day of the week. But there is a principle that God gives as the Creator to give a day to rest and to the worship of God. I don't think we need to erect a lot of rules and regulations to make it a day of misery for anybody who's under 25. But I do think we should be thoughtful along these lines. There's a principle that's here. God is the Creator, and He gives this day to his people to rest and to find their confidence in him and to worship him as a community. We have this great privilege to make the Lord's day a unique day, and I trust that we always will. What do they do in response? Verse 24, they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. Probably getting ready to pinch their noses. Think, man, this stuff's going to rot. We went through this once before. This is not going to be a fun scene, but it doesn't. It did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Israel obeys the Lord 
and receives the blessing. But the disobedience continues. Verse 27, On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Direct violation of what God has said to do. They gathered double. They ate it on the seventh day, but went out that seventh day, or maybe there's some of them that didn't gather what they should have. We don't know why, but they just go out and do what God says not to do. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 28, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? There's a frustration on God's part here. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, He gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. God will provide, and He'll provide in His way at His time. According to His laws, we need to press forward. Now we see here a failure on Israel's part to trust the Word of God. And we need to understand that this is going to be an ongoing account. Something that will develop in their relationship with God. God is very patient here. As Israel grows, God becomes less and less patient. Here, He becomes angry for a moment. But in the future, He will have to judge Israel for her disobedience to His Word. One commentator titles this section of Exodus, Life as an Adolescent. I I think that's pretty fitting. Life as an Adolescent. Grumbling and disobedience. But then there's less and less tolerance as the child grows. And a time when the child grumbles to the point where God must judge. I mean, think of it with a little child. There's times when a child's complaining about something and you, you smile. Because it's just an evidence of the immaturity the child just doesn't understand. And it's, it's almost funny at times when they grumble about something that they don't have and you know is right there and will be supplied. But that same grumbling in the words of a teenager starts to become really irritating and disappointing to the parents as it evidences ongoing immaturity. And you know what? Sometimes that same grumbling word is in the mouth of an adult and then it's really ugly. And this is, in a sense, God's relationship with Israel. There's here in these early stages where he almost smiles as she grumbles. But here his anger begins to show because the grumbling just continues. And there's going to be a time when Israel, more mature in these wilderness wanderings, receives the judgment of God, which lashes out against her in her utter immaturity, though she knows so much better. God lays out his word. Israel disobeys. Here, God meets her with another word. A word about meat and bread, a word about Sabbath observance, and then a word concerning memorial, verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna, this bread. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So it's a sweet and tasty bread, a wonderful provision, not some dry, toasty stuff they hated. But Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it, again this measure, be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. What's the testimony? The testimony is the Ark of the Covenant. Where's the Ark of the Covenant? It's nowhere. It's not been made yet. It's a very curious statement. 
We don't know if God has spoken to Moses about the Ark of the Covenant at this point. We don't know if this is editorial comment that comes later or how exactly we are to read this. Maybe this statement comes later in Israel's history. But at any rate, God says to Moses, put an omer, a measure of this manna before the Ark of the Covenant. This earthen jar of manna was to be kept as a perpetual reminder of what? As a perpetual reminder that God provides for His children. One day the manna would stop, but the lesson about God was to endure forever, and it's to endure to this day. Our omer before the Ark of the Covenant, so to speak, is right here in this book before us. God provided for His people because that's the kind of God that He is. He always provides for His people. Now what I think very well may be an editorial note. Verse 35, The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. We have no indication that Moses saw this or was around. Joshua 5, verses 10-12, through 12, speaking of the cessation of this manna. In Moses' day, and Moses did not see this. And so we probably have an editorial note, and certainly verse 36, an omer is the tenth part of an ephah. That is, there's a new measure here. The omer was an older measure that was used, and so in the updating here, there is a help to those who had those measures, an omer or an ephah. There's that note here. And so I think it indicates to us that in the inspiration of the text of Scripture, there were editorial comments that God made sure were exactly what He wanted said and indicated in the text of Scripture. This is a historical note. This happened. Here's somebody coming in later, after Moses, I believe, has written the book of Exodus, sometime later, who knows that the manna stops and says, yes, it stopped when we came to the land of Canaan, and this is the measure of it. And let me update the measure here for you. This is no story. This is no myth. This happened to Israel. And the editor here is updating it so that those who are in that setting can understand it historically. It's a fascinating text. Just a fascinating account and narrative. I'll tell you, we really fall very far short of it if we do not see it in light of where it's pointing. Where is this text pointing? Where does it look? I invite you to Luke chapter 4. If you want to just look there, I won't be reading this, we'll move through this fairly quickly, but I think we need to stop and consider the significance of this narrative and be moving then to John chapter 6 just momentarily. But in Luke chapter 4, what do we see? We see Jesus in the wilderness without food, not for a day or two, not with the ability to kill a lamb, we haven't even mentioned that here, but Israel did have the ability to kill a lamb and a goat here and there and stay alive. But we have Jesus here in the wilderness. Where? Did you hear it? In the wilderness. For 40 days without food. He's right where Israel was. He's in the wilderness without food. Right in the same situation. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus here without food for this long period of time. Satan comes and tempts him to make food, which he has the power to do as God. But Jesus answers in verse 4, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. We're not talking theory here. Jesus is more hungry than you will ever be in your life by the grace of God and nothing that we will ever experience. But in that moment, He says, it is more important that I feed on the Word of God than that I feed on food. 
Right circumstances are not as important as obedience to the Word of God. I will eat when God provides my food. That's unreal. Forty days without food, the temptation is there, and he says no. He knows what? He knows that God will provide his every need. His orientation here is not, I have to eat, I have to eat. Where is God? I have to eat. His orientation here is Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, which depicts Israel in the wilderness not having bread, and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, the Father was the Son's all-sufficient source, and Jesus knew that God would meet every need in his perfect time. Since God is the all-sufficient supply of our every need, God is our only need. And that need is supplied to us in a vibrant spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. We live by the Word of God and His provision. And what is that provision? John chapter 6, as we read earlier today, We find ultimately for us on this side of the cross that that provision is the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. What? He feeds them bread, and where does he feed them? In the wilderness. You can't miss this. There's a great body of Israelites who have a need for food in the wilderness, and Jesus supplies them with physical bread feeding 5,000 verses 1 through 14. Now as we come to chapter 25, there's people who are running after Jesus and want more bread, more physical bread. They find him on the other side of the sea, verse 25 of John 6, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, by the way, if they'd have really known the answer to that, they'd have been even more impressed, but he doesn't worry about that one. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus, again, isn't talking in theory here. He was 40 days in the wilderness and said, I will not eat until God says so. And he says, that's where you find your food from the mouth of God. The Son of Man will give it to you. This food that gives life. They said to him, verse 28, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. It's not doing. It's trusting. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. Apparently feeding 5,000 out of almost nothing isn't enough for him. Well, come on, do something else. Jesus is, you know, he's the, he's the circus magician here. He can perform something for us. Convince us this time. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's what Jesus has just done, is give them bread in the wilderness But he knows that the point is deeper. Verse 32, he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Not an it, but a he. 
And they say to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. What is the bread of God? It is Jesus Christ. And it is a relationship with Jesus Christ that results in eternal life. This is the bread of God that's come down from heaven. Exodus 16 is pointing to Jesus Christ. And you know what they do? You can't miss this in John 6. What do they do? Verse 41, the Jews grumbled. They grumbled. Verse 61, sadly, even some who had followed Christ grumbled about this. That Jesus himself is my sustaining bread. That the word of God is my provision. They grumbled because they didn't want to accept that. But what Jesus is saying is, I am your supplier. I will give you eternal life. So Israel grumbles because there's no bread, and now the bread of God comes down to earth, and Israel grumbles because there is bread. A bread they don't want to eat. A bread that they do not want to trust. True faith responds in what way? True faith comes and sees Jesus Christ in this place and feasts on Jesus as the fully sufficient provision of God for all things at all times, forever and ever. Christian, we must feast on Jesus Christ every day. If Jesus abandoned you for one moment, look at verses 35 and following, if He abandoned you for one moment... You would be lost forever. If the mother in our illustration walked away from her child in the middle of an airport, that child would have no hope outside the grace of someone else. Well, in this universe, there are no other gods. If God abandoned you for one moment, you would be lost forever. We need to feed on the provision of Jesus Christ every single day. For my flesh, says Jesus in verse 55, is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in them. This turns off the person who doesn't get it. Jesus, of course, is speaking about a faith relationship with him who satisfies our every need. Now, you know, when it comes to this issue of needs, we've got to be really careful here. Because we can dishonor the glory of Jesus Christ by following our world's understanding of need. The popular approach of our day is to spend a whole lot of time defining your unique needs as a person and then work with other people to make sure that they supply those needs to you. We do need one another. There is no question about that. 
There are needs that we legitimately have. But what we do not want to miss here is that the focus of Scripture is not defining our unique needs and setting up people around us to meet them. The focus of Scripture is to know Jesus Christ who supplies every need. In fact, as God, He supplies needs I don't know I have. So often when we define our own needs, we misdefine our needs. Jesus will never do that. As the supplier of every good gift, He will meet us where we need Him to meet us and how we need Him to meet us. He will never fail us or forsake us, ever. Go to Christ. Don't worry about figuring everything out about yourself and doing all this self-psychological analysis to figure out what my needs are. Our need is Jesus. It's a relationship with Him, and He will supply it all. A daily dependence on Jesus like a little boy. That's my task in life. Like a little child to depend on what he gives. His all-sufficient wisdom and grace is sufficient. It will meet me in my need. Now I hear the cynic standing up and going, yeah, God will supply your every need. Just watch out for his definition of need. You know, the turkey farmer meets every need of the turkey who sits in this shed and waiting for decapitation day. And, you know, God's not, I mean, when you find out how God takes care of needs, well, he, he defines that pretty, I mean, he's pretty stingy in his definition. Don't go there. Romans 8 and verse 28 and verse 29 are still in the Bible. He works all things together for the good of those who love Him. And what is the good? Verse 29 is that we would be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's His project. When He defines need, He does not define it the way we often do. And we can thank God for that. He defines it in a most glorious way. I'm going to make you into the likeness of Jesus Christ so that you will know a joy that is deeper than anything you have ever experienced or could experience in this life. And when it explodes in glory, you will be filled with a joy that lasts for eternity. That's what I'm up to in meeting your needs. Says our Heavenly Father. Meeting our every need on life's journey means that God shapes His people into the likeness of Christ and it means that he uses suffering and he uses hunger and thirst and difficulty because he's on a big project. Cling to it. It will prove painful at times, but God is our all-sufficient source and every trial is an opportunity to experience that truth. I do not need financial security, or popularity, or a mate, or ideal children, or easy circumstances. We love these things as God supplies them in an honorable way, and on and on we could add to this list, but I do not need anything but Jesus Christ, God's living word. If I have him, I'm going to make the journey, and it will be glorious in the end. If you are here without Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are missing everything. We do not, as a church, preach to Jesus that you add on to the things that are going well in your life. He is everything. 
If you have not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, who has paid the penalty of your sin and risen from the dead, if you've not come to that message and embraced Jesus as your Savior, you've not tasted the bread of life and you're hungry. And all you need to do is come and to eat. As He opens your eyes to see what He has provided, come and eat. Lay down your sin and self and all the things that you think are your need and come to Jesus Christ and He will supply needs you don't even know you have. For those of us that know Jesus as Savior, let's say with all of our heart that Jesus is my all-sufficient supplier of every need. I believe that. I'm going to work with my church and with other believers to continue to speak that truth to one another that He will supply every need He is the bread of life. And if you've tasted Him, you will never hunger again. Do you trust that? Do you believe it? By God's grace, may we experience it. Let's bow for prayer. Father, how weak is our faith. How far short we fall in our walk with You. But our Father, we praise You with joy unspeakable when we consider that You've got us covered. You supply our every need, not in a stingy way, but according to the riches of Christ. And so we rejoice as Your people. For anyone who knows You not as Savior, I pray, dear God, that You'll draw them to saving faith today, that they would turn from their sin and receive Jesus Christ as the bread of life. I pray, God, that you would work in us as a church to lift high the glory of Christ and to grow in his likeness. God, it's painful at times. And we need you to supply our needs. But we walk out from this place with glad hearts to know that you're doing just that. Someday in eternity, we will rejoice in all the trials of life. And I pray that you will grant us the faith to do so even now as we consider the grand project into which you have called us. We give you thanks for your glories. In the name of our Savior, amen.